welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. I'm really excited to bring to you a somewhat different conversation today. I'm talking with Michael Bungay-Stania, an internationally renowned author, company founder and thought leader in coaching. You might hear his Australian accent, but he left Australia some 30 years ago and now lives in Toronto. Michael is the founder of Box of Crayons, a learning and development company that helps organisations move from being advice-driven to more curiosity-led, and they've trained hundreds and thousands of managers and leaders worldwide to be more coach-like. He's the author of six books. The best-known book is called The Coaching Habit, which has sold close to a million copies and has thousands of five-star reviews online. And his latest book, The Advice Trap, the name of which I embarrassingly get wrong in the fluster of the conversation, uh, focuses on what it takes to tame your advice monster. So what's being more coach-like got to do with changing academic life, you might ask? Well, I think a lot, actually. As academics, we play out personas of being experts and having all the answers, and this is even reflected in the language we use like advisors to PhD students and similar. And as he talks about in the conversation, though, taking on these sorts of roles comes with their own set of punishments as well as prizes. And what he advocates instead is trying to become more coach-like in our everyday interactions with the people we're leading or supervising or collaborating with, say, in in an academic context. And this is about trying to do simple but actually quite hard things like staying curious a little longer asking good questions and being slower to jump into giving advice. So, you know, talking about taming the advice monster. And I think there are loads of potential benefits for us as academics if we can learn to do this more because it's a great counter to the old imposter lurking behind many of us. It takes the weight off our own shoulders of thinking we need to have all the answers and it helps grow and develop and unlock the the potential of the people that we're working with, that we have the privilege to work with. So it's a really powerful development tool. Now, this is a longer preamble than normal because I, I start off the conversation getting a bit waylaid into reflecting on his interesting career paths and, and then talking about the ways in which academia may be different or similar to industry. So you may choose to skip this and jump to around 15, 16 minutes or so when we get into what it means to be more coach-like, staying curious longer, rushing to action and advice giving a little more slowly. We discuss why this is useful and the problems with jumping too quickly to giving advice and also how to recognise the different advice monster personas. So the the audio quality may be a little bit patchy in parts, my apologies. We both both had uh, network issues, but I'm sure the content will still be clear and that you'll get a lot out of it. 
So I'm really hoping you enjoy this conversation with Michael Bungo-Stanya. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate the time that you're, you're going to give and not just the time, but what I think will be a really important and interesting discussion to the audience uh, for this, you know, for this podcast, which are largely academics. So uh, I will have given a bit of a preamble before this, but uh, sure. do you want to give your two-minute potted bio from, yeah, from your own perspective? <laughs> sure. Well, look, here's the here's the kind of resume. Um, story because it's like it kind of jumps from achievement to achievement rather than the kind of interesting stuff. But I'm Australian born, um, grew up in Canberra, went to the uh, ANU, the Australian National University, um, did a, a arts degree in literature and a law degree here, um, won a road scholarship, which took me to Oxford, where I did a master's degree in literature. More importantly, I didn't become a lawyer and I um, met my wife, who's Canadian. And uh, was asked if I wanted to do a PhD at Oxford. And I wisely turned that down because it, I think I would have made a, a pretty lousy academic. I just don't have the the discipline and the focus to kind of dig deep into research. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. more of a show off. Um, so <laughs> worked for a while in England in the world of innovation and creativity and then in the world of organizational change management and development. Um, that company took me from... Uh, London to Boston. Um, then in 2001, left Boston, headed up to Toronto, and shortly after that, started my own company, which I didn't really know what it was going to be. But it turned out that uh, it grew from being just a sole practitioner's practice to um, a, a, a training company, a learning and development company called Box of Crayons. And it, at its heart is some of the content and intellectual property I've created around practical coaching skills for everyday people for Mm. staying curious a little bit Mm. longer. Mm. And I guess now I'm best known for a book called the coaching habit, which sold about a million copies and is kind of the, I could, I I think I can claim that it's the best selling coaching book, certainly this century. Mm. That's, that's pretty amazing. And it is pretty amazing. I'm I'm even, I'm more surprised than anybody. Trust me. (laughs) Because I, I know the story about you couldn't get a publisher for it, which I think is just even more mm. more amazing, which is really great. And also a, a more recent book called the uh, the advice habit, the, the advice trap, the yeah. advice trap. Oh goodness, yeah. <laughs> it's on That's my right. Kindle, and right. I miss having the physical <laughs> book that, that I, I can that. look at. Yeah, it's like yeah. A, a companion book to the the yeah. coach, but it yeah. goes a little deeper into the why do people resist what feels like a simple uh, invitation to stay curious a little bit longer. And so it's a deeper dive into personal change. Yeah. And I, I read it as a, a prequel and a sequel to The Coaching Habit, actually, because it sort of sets up and motivates yeah. The Coaching Habit a bit more. <laughs> and it also, in, in the sequel part, you know, sort of help, talks about bedding it in. And I want to get into that all a little bit more. But I, I just sure. think, you know, just as a little digression, um. One of the things in talking to people is often interesting hearing about their different career choices and career paths. And one of the things that strikes me in talking to the academics I talk to is, you know, people have these interesting winding paths and they often end up in places that they don't expect. And a lot of this is luck. And, you you know, you've reflected a similar thing, you know, that uh, you could have done a PhD and made a choice not to. 
Yeah, you and know, we, Pat- I, we, all, we all hit these crossroads and we go left or we go right. And mm. what might feel like a trivial decision turns out to be one of those life-changing things where you're like, oh, mm. suddenly these opportunities opened up to me. And if I hadn't taken the right-handed elevator instead of the left-hand elevator, they never would have. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's reassuring for, you know, for all of us that it, you know, stuff can work out. You know, we, we can happen to get into the right elevator or, and, or we what, can have a way of making it work out. Which one, is, one of my favourite quotes, great. Jerry, is inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. Yes, And there's, there's a way that, you know, there's a, there's a pressure people feel, which is around get, trying to get your career choices sorted out really early on. And, you know, I only found my focus in my mid thirties. Um, I spent my twenty my twenties, partly spending a lot of time at university longer than I thought I would. Um, and then trying to do stuff and go, what is it? What, what am I taking from this? What do I like? What do I not like? And I just learned a bunch of things, mm. you know, I'm, Mm. mostly unemployable because I don't really like bosses and I don't get on well with them. <laughs> um, I don't particularly want to be on the front lines of capitalism and trying to get people to buy stuff and do stuff more, but I do like mixing things up and trying to zag when other people are zigging and kind of it's through experience. It's through doing the work that you start to unlock your potential. Mm-hmm. I think we can, mm. we can, we can try and overthink this stuff. And actually, yeah. I'm not sure you can figure this stuff out. You have to you have to journey through it to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing that you said there is not just journeying through it, but stopping and thinking about, you know, looking back and going, What what have I liked and what I what haven't mm. I liked and what do I want to do? Exactly. And exactly. That giving ourselves permission to do that, stopping and thinking, you know, can be good. Um I'm glad that you did sag, you know, over to this area of um, setting up the company and the books that have come out of it, because mm. I, I can I can attest that they've been really influential and powerful uh, inputs in my career. And the the you know I think one of your earlier books as well the the uh, you know, um, do more great work, stop the busy work and start yeah. the work that matters also picks up on that theme of trying to recognise what are the things that you know, really energise and, and empower you in your work, you know, where you're at your best. I mean, it's a combination of things that I hope. Um, one is people find work that is meaningful for them, that lights them up and mm. you enter that virtuous circle of doing work that amplifies and strengthens the best of who you are and then you do more work that takes you even further and so you know you you, you fulfill potential that you have um and yeah. then the second thing i hope for is that you do work that um gives more to the world than it takes so you you make this yeah. world a better place because you know the world is not is is both amazing and also a bit broken so it's like what do we need to yeah. do to try and make this world better and if there are a lot of people going asking that question and finding their answer to it, then that feels helpful for, for everyone. Mm, yeah. And that's also where I think your work around the coaching habit and the advice trap are really important for academia because a lot of what we do is about trying to 
make the world a better place through research or through teaching. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I think that we don't really know how to do that well. Um, and I, I think that, yeah, there's the, there are particular characteristics of people who make it into academia that uh, make us perhaps some of the best targets for your work. Have you, have you ever thought about that? Because you normally talk to more corporate audiences. That's right, I do. So I, I haven't really thought about it. Well, what characteristics do you see in the kind of academic population that yeah. I've missed or, or you think might particularly resonate <laughs> with some of these, these challenges? I think that we've, we've been, we're trained to be experts in our field, you know, deep experts mm -hmm. in whatever is the topic for your PhD research or whatever discipline you're in. And I think a lot of the reward structures in academia as well reward people for being experts and for demonstrating that expertise in sort of very visible right. and loud ways. Um, mm -hmm. And on the other hand, though, the sort of the nature, and I think there are some studies that back this up, a lot of the people who tend to go into this will often be more on the perfectionist end of this of the spectrum as well. Right. And there's a, <laughs> a lot of talk about the experience of imposter syndrome. So we're all there being trained to be experts and got to sort of uh, project our expertise, but at the same time we're going, oh, my God, they're going to find me out. And so I sort totally of think that. where, where, uh, where you're, you know, like you're uh, – advice wants to people on steroids because of a lot of that because we have to maintain those those personas yeah, yeah. yeah i mean when i when i was at oxford i lived in a house with 14 other people all doing phds and it was a very depressed house mm. because there's, <laughs> you know there's that sense of you know as the classic saying goes i i know more and more about less and less until i know everything about mm. nothing mm. um and absolutely part of what academia is about is is literally and metaphorically authority you know i am an author of yes. this idea and one of the framings to have jerry is to say look i'm certainly not against advice and i'm not against great ideas being well expressed i think those are critical components of civilization and there is a place where author um, ideas and authority can be um overwhelming and be used for shorter term aims rather than longer term aims. So it is a mm. useful question to ask in any context. And and you know, academics for sure have a, a bunch of pressure on them to to maintain and prove their expertise. Not least because it's an it's an industry where partly you prove yourself by being able to attack others' expertise. <laughs> so you're constantly like, yeah. was to defend my ideas. Of course, yeah. you've got this wiring to kind of go, so I'm doubling down on my ideas. Mm. It's just helpful and to understand that um, when that's a choice you want to actively make and when you realize it just might be a habit that you've fallen into and that that mm. that defense of your ideas is possibly closing you off to other opportunities. And it's interesting that the, 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 uh, the, the sort of the exam a process you know, at the end of the PhD process is often called a defence, which very right. much picks you know just the very the, the very language is about defending ideas, and right. it, you're making me think as well about you know, other research that also points to the fact that we get 
better ideas and we're more creative together and we come up with better solutions. So, you know, we'll do better research and better science when we actually bring everyone's ideas together. And that takes a different way of engaging. It does. And, I mean, I just want to say that all what we're talking about here, sure, it applies to the world of academia, but it just, it's just everywhere. You know, mm. there's the same patterns that play out in organizational life where people get to a certain level and they have their expertise and they have their silos to defend. And even when you're brought together on a team, the job isn't really to challenge other people's ideas. It's just to provide your expertise and kind of somehow blend them together. Mm. And yeah. and you know, when I talk about coaching, really that coaching is just a manifestation of a bigger ch- change that I would love to see in the world. And this is how I articulate it, Jerry. I go, I'd love people to stay curious just a little bit longer and rush to mm. action and advice giving a little bit more slowly. And mm-hmm. you can see that in in individual academic pursuits, the power of curiosity is a key part of it. Um, Cause you know, you have to figure stuff out. You have to kind of claim your new, your new idea and find your new way of framing it and connect the data to the critical theory that you're using and however you're, whatever field you're working in. But that idea of taking the curiosity that at the heart fuels so much of the academic world mm. and then going, how do I bring that, that curiosity to how I teach? How do I bring that curiosity to how I share my ideas in the world, how I collaborate with other academics within my department, within other other fields and other disciplines? That's when I think things start getting rich and interesting. Yeah, yeah, to- totally agree. And that staying curious is so powerful. And I, I want to go there and explore that a bit more in a tick, but I it would be interesting just to step back and ask why is moving to action and advice giving straight away not necessarily a good thing to do always? What's the problem with it? Well, I think the problem is threefold. The first challenge is that if you move to advice giving right away, step number one is almost always you're trying to solve the wrong problem. Because you've been yeah. seduced into thinking that the first challenge that's expressed is the real challenge. And almost always it's worth interrogating what that real challenge is. I mean, not always. I mean, if somebody goes, hey, Jerry, I can't find the margarine. <laughs> Where is that? You don't have to have a mm. coaching conversation about that. You can just go, it's on the second second drawer of the refrigerator. Um, but for anything other than kind of the most practical transactional question, it's often worthwhile just being a little more curious about let's figure out what the real challenge is because you know mm. just everywhere people are busy trying to solve the wrong problems then the second challenge is even if you know what the real challenge is you've figured out the real nut to crack well then typically your advice just isn't as good as you think it is and we're, what? We're, i know <laughs> but it's like <laughs> we're we're do, do just some cursory reading on cognitive biases and you'll realize just how many things you've got going on in your brain to convince mm. you that your advice is the bomb. <laughs> your advice is fantastic. <laughs> and I can only imagine that's exacerbated in 
in academia where you all have PhDs to prove how good your yeah, advice is. Yeah, we're the experts. Yeah, but it's your advice is dated and it's biased and it comes with uh, the limitations of your experience. Um, it's just, it's worthwhile being skeptical about how good your advice is. Mm. And then the third thing is, mm. is even if you even if you really know what the problem is, and actually if you've got some advice, which is stellar, which is the perfect advice, the third bigger question is, is this the right act for the moment? You're yeah. in organizational life in particular. I go, is this the right leadership act? Because if you're a leader of a team, um, whether it's a, a kind of junior team or whether you're the CEO, it's really worth asking, you know, what's the consequence of me giving advice at this moment? Sure, it might solve mm. the problem, but does it increase capacity and confidence and competence and autonomy and self-sufficiency in those around me? Because often the bigger win is to build those capacities because they're longer term capacities. Yeah. Even if that person's idea might not be quite as brilliant as yours. It's probably good enough. And if they have it and they own it and they try it out, then you're actually building a better person, not just solving mm. a, an immediate need. Mm, I really like that, building the person and not just solving an immediate need. And the immediate need, though, can often uh, loom large in front of us and feel like it just needs solving because we're so busy because that's also one of the characteristics, I think, of academia at the moment, the increasing intensification of work where people are feeling overwhelmed, mm. really overwhelmed. Yeah. Offering up crappy s solutions to the wrong problem doesn't fix the overwhelm yeah. thing. It just actually exacerbates no. it. And it one, of the, one of the myths that I love challenging is this idea that, well, being more coach-like takes a whole lot of time. You know, yeah. if Jerry comes into my office or my Zoom screen and goes, Michael, blah, 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 fire, blah, 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 burning, blah, 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 panic, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Give me the answer. There's one part of me is like, oh my God, I want to help. I, I'm trying to be helpful here. Maybe I can offer up some suggestions. Mm. But if I just go, Jerry, I get this is urgent. Tell me what's the, what's the challenge here? What's the real challenge here for you? That is a question that's taken me 10 seconds to ask. It's reset the conversation immediately it's actually calming because it's forcing the other person to slow yeah. down and take a breath and have a think. Mm -hmm. And actually, if I can help Jerry figure out what the real challenge is, it means that in five minutes, we've got a bead on what really needs to be fixed. And we can actually use our combined brain power to come up with some solutions to that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really powerful. And the, the thing about building longer-term capacity is actually also what we're all about because whether it's teaching our students in our, in our classes or mentoring and supervising PhD students, we're, you know, we're supposed to be about growing capacity. And that takes a, that takes a shift in perspective, though, to step back right. from the immediate uh, because I've heard, I've heard 8,000 stories from people doing their PhD on how crap their supervisor or their advisor is. Yeah. Because it, it, you, get, you get this response. You know what? Look, I know I broadly know this field, but I don't know much about your specific topic. So good luck. <laughs> I've got no specific yeah. advice to offer. So mm. I, I, that, that means I've got nothing to help you with. 
And mm. that just is wrong on all sorts of levels. Because you know, if somebody comes to you and they're like, "This is my, this is I'm working on this PhD," you're great. Okay, so chapter, this chapter, what's the challenge here for you in figuring the, your argument out for this particular chapter? You know, my background is in the arts, so I always kind of come at it as a as an arts, a humanities PhD. But it's the same in science as well, which is like this is this is the work you're doing on. You're you know you're working on this experiment for your laboratory leader. What's the challenge for you in figuring this out? Mm-hmm. And you can be, I mean, I coach people all the time in fields where I have no domain expertise at all. <laughs> I mean, just nothing. Mm. Yeah. But I do have a commitment to help and then some degree of expertise and kind of being mm-hmm. present and helping them figure stuff out. And honestly, sometimes not knowing the answer is a great freedom because I can't, I can't offer up any suggestions because it'd be patently yeah. ridiculous. Um. I'm coaching the head of sales for Microsoft. Well, how much experience have I had leading a global <laughs> multi-billion dollar sales division? Mm. Exactly 0.0%. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. doesn't matter. So if you're an academic, you can still be a powerful support, even if you don't know the specifics of your your student's thesis. Yeah. Yep. And the reaction when when I talk about this with people, um, they they often will look get this look of fear on their face with you know the big eyes, mm-hmm. you know the deer in the headlights, and go. But but they're expecting me to give advice. You know they're expecting me to know the yeah. answer. And yeah, uh, yeah. So I just go. So, You're probably expecting me to have advice here, so I don't <laughs> because this isn't my field. But I do have some mm. questions I want to ask you, and they might be helpful. So I try and talk to the um, to what's going on. It's like a meta conversation, which is, yeah. and you can do this right at the start of a relationship or in the middle of it. But if you're just starting to supervise somebody, or if you're just starting to be supervised by somebody, it's like have a conversation about how that's going to work. Um, it's 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 seductive just to plunge right into the topic. You know, I'm, I'm writing about this topic and they're like, great, that's fantastic. You should read this book and go and talk to that person. But it's like, hey, how will we work together? And if, I'm, if I was a supervisor, I would go, look, here's the deal. I'm probably going to be able to offer actual technical useful ideas one time in 20. Because even though I know this field broadly, my expertise is here and your expertise is in the neighborhood over there. So I know a tiny bit, but honestly, I'm not here for technical expertise. I'm here for support and encouragement. I'm here to help you think some things through. Mm. I'm here to challenge some of your thinking. That's how you can best use me. Yeah. And one of the questions that you can you can offer as well is, you know, who can help you with the technical expertise if you do need it so that, yeah. you know, it's it's still okay that you don't have that expertise. Exactly. It's like, it sounds to me, Jerry, that you're looking for somebody who has expertise in, in one, two, and three fields. So here's what mm. I'd like you to do. Go and have a think about who you think might be best to find that expertise and then come back to me and I'll see if I can help you make connections to them. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like, <laughs> I, I'm already helping this person. I don't know any, I don't even know what, what, what we're talking about, but I'm like, oh, if you come back to me and go, I need to speak to Professor X. I'm like, okay, I don't know Professor X, but I know Professor Y who might know Professor X. So I can help figure some stuff out for you. And then you are offering support and advice. You just haven't leapt in right at the start to try and fix something 
that may not yeah. be the thing that needs to be fixed. I, I know that if I, you know, so you talk about uh, advice monsters and different types of advice monsters, mm-hmm. and I know that if I can catch my advice monster before it jumps out and I can sometimes feel it in my throat, sure, <laughs> but if I yeah. can just stop and take a breath and, as you said, like just sort of be present and, you know, sometimes I'll say, you know, I, th- I think I have um, you know, something that I could offer, but before we do that, I'd love to hear what your thinking right. is so far or whatever. Yeah, really helpful to have, have practiced phrases like that. You know, it's like yeah. I've, got, I've got a number of those phrases which are on automatic for me now because I've been practicing them so long. It's like it's it's a self-management tool. You go, mm. oh, Jerry, I've got, I've got a few things that come to mind immediately. And part of me is busting to tell you. But before I tell you, let me ask you this. What's the real challenge here for you? What I always get surprised at as well is even when I think, so sometimes I, I am genuinely doing it, you know, like my, my, my heart is in it. I'm genuinely saying, look, you know, what, what are you, what's your thinking so far? And other times I'm asking that because I've sort of read your books and I know that I ought to and I'm going through the motions and I will still be so surprised at where we end up at that's in a much better Right. solution, set of ideas, um, ways forward than I ever would have thought of in, in giving yeah. my advice. It's, it's very humbling. It's humbling. For, and I understand the humbling piece. For me, it's very freeing. I'm just like, oh, uh-huh. it is. What a, what a relief that yeah. actually I've come, come to realize that almost all of my advice is hopeless and useless. So I just don't even <laughs> need to bother with that. It is far more helpful for yeah. me to try and help be the person who figures out the real problem and to be the person who comes up with some fast and wrong, um, you know, tidbits yeah. and advice. Yeah. That 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 freeing thing also resonates because I I remember actually physically feeling like a weight had been taken off my shoulders when I realised I didn't mm-hmm. need to have all the answers, and that it was right. okay to say I didn't as well, which. Right. It's, it's, that's not, not a confession of weakness. That's a confession of clarity on what your role is. Mm. Well, that's nice. There's, there's a thing that sometimes that gets framed as like, oh, I just don't have the answers and I've come to terms with my, my inadequacy. <laughs> like, no, no, no. You don't have the answers because it's not your job to have all the answers. And it's impossible mm. to have all the answers. And in fact, it's a false expectation and a terrible burden to think that you should have all the answers. And that's not even yeah. helpful to have all the answers. Because even if you have all the answers, all that does is set you up as some omniscient person who disempowers everybody around you because what are they there for if you have all the answers? Disempowers and adds to your overwhelm and burden and burnout. It's not like you're sitting around going, I'm hoping somebody comes to me with some work to do today because I just don't have enough. (laughs) Yeah. I think what I'm also learning to try to do as well in recognising that is that everyone can be part of this conversation as well. It's not just within your uh, supervisory relationships, you know, so it's the whole group that, you can draw on together um, or, or direct people to as well, you know, that mobilising the power of the collective. I'm just wondering where it's useful to go now because you do talk about 
three different types of personas around advice monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wonder if that's useful to go to because I think some of our first challenges are just around awareness of our own behaviours. I think um, that's right. As a first step. So yes. I'm, I'm wondering whether sort of just a quick um overview of what some of those personas are might be helpful for people just to start to see where they may be coming from or not. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, the the, the backstory just briefly for people, I wrote The Coaching Habit um, about five years ago, and it's gone on to be this amazing best-selling coaching book. And at the heart of it is seven questions. It says, look, if you can take these seven questions and make them or at least some of them into a kind of daily usage, a habit, then that's going to change the way that you lead and that you show up and that you interact and the relationships you have with people. And lots and lots of people have taken those seven questions and just run with them and they're, they're making great progress. And I get these great emails going, this changed everything and I'm now running my organic farm differently or whatever it might be. It's very cool. But there's also some people who read that book and they went, look, Michael, your book's good. I get the seven questions. I've written them down. I, in theory, I fully understand the power of staying curious a little bit longer. But in practice, that's proving much harder than I thought it would. I love to give advice, and I'm finding it hard to break that habit. So The Advice Trap, which is the, the book that came out um, a little over a year ago, is a conversation around, well, what, gets in the, what keeps you pulling you back to wanting to give advice? And the three mm-hmm. advice monsters are the personas of the of the kind of the reason why you love to give advice so the three advice monsters are tell it save it and control it um and Mm -hmm. you can either think of them as three different monsters or personas of one monster up to you entirely so tell it has convinced you that the way that you add value is to be the person with all the answers you know you should have all the answers to all the people all the time and of course that's impossible like we've, we've already talked about you know, you get the you get the benefit of that. You know, you can see you can see why you'd be tempted to to say yes to talent because it makes you the smart person, mm. it makes you valuable. People come to you for advice. You're in control. You're the wise person. Come, people come and tug the he- the hem of your robe. All that great stuff. But but each 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 um, advice monster has prizes and punishments, and the prizes tend to be short term and a bit kind of ego driven. Punishments tend to have mm. bigger implications. And the, the price you pay, the punishments for the teller, is A, the pressure and the impossibility of having all the answers. Secondly, how you become the bottleneck and you become overwhelmed. Thirdly, how you, yeah. you disempower people around you and disallow them to find their own answers and to claim their own authority. So save it is a second of the advice monsters and it's a little more subtle. It puts its arm around you and go, hey, your job is to make sure nobody ever struggles or stumbles or finds it difficult. You need to protect everybody from all the hardships all the time. And if you're not doing that, then you've failed. And of course, that's impossible because, you know, mm-hmm. life. <laughs> um, but you, lots of us have that kind of rescuer uh, sensibility, which is like, let me jump in and fix it and solve it and save yeah. it and just make you feel better. I was going to say, I bring in a bit of martyr to that as well. For sure. I mean, that's actually one of the, the subtle prizes, which is, you know, you, 
you feel like you're helping everybody. You feel like you're the savior. You feel like you're the martyr because you're, you know, you're the only one who's kind of giving up your life <laughs> for this institution and for those around you. Um, but, but the 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 punishments are severe, which is like it's exhausting, it's frustrating, mm. it's smothering. Um, you spend your whole time trying to do other people's work, so you don't ever get to do yours. All of these are consequences of of that advice monster. Mm. And then the third advice monster, which is the the subtlest of them all, is the controller. And controller said, "Hey, look, your job is to stay in control and keep control, and don't give up control. You need to manage the thing from the start through the middle to the end." And of course, the prizes are you know you stay in control, you feel like you're the authority, you uh, don't allow disruptions to happen, you don't allow you don't have to share power with anybody. But the the price you pay, the punishments are there as well, which is like you don't allow the serendipity of the future. Um, you may be perfectly controlling the wrong thing, disempowerment, of course, exhaustion of being mm. the one who has to be holding the steering wheel all the time, um, lack of scalability. All of those things are true. So, yeah, if you're listening, you know, whichever one of those advice monsters, one of those will probably resonate most with you. And if you if you want to take a quick quiz, you can go to theadvicetrap.com and you'll see there's a free quiz that you can take to dig deeper on this. But the the insight that I'd offer up is just to say, hey, you know what? It's um, uh, once you understand some of your motivators for wanting to jump in and give advice, and the price you and others pay for that, then you may have a better chance of shifting your behavior. Yeah, and I th I think that's really important just to reflect on because it's you and the others who pay the price. That's right. You know, you just, yeah, it, and it, it can be a big price. And I also can see the way, you know, we, we I just said at the beginning about the, the great doing more great work. It's it's probably not in your great workspace. So it's also taking time and energy away from what you could be doing and the big difference you could be making in the world. Um, that's right. know, in the own In your own work that you're doing. I mean, I don't think there are many people who go, you know what, the impact I really want to have on this world is to micromanage as many people as possible. <laughs> it's like it's, if you can manage people in a way that liberates them and frees them and encourages yeah. them, then that's brilliant. And your advice yeah. monster is not going to be a path for that. Yeah. I, I, there's something that you mention in the book that I think is really, or I found really powerful, and it was about sort of the subtle messages that this is conveying as well about, mm. you know, in, in doing this, and and this just fits our academic persona so well, or what we need to try to project is that I'm better and smarter, and you know I do have all the answers, and somehow you're not smart enough, or I don't trust you enough, or you're not good enough. Yeah. Um. And I, yeah, I think that's worth thinking about as well. I think that's quite powerful. It is, and you know, it, you have to acknowledge that. What I notice, anyway, I'm sure I don't get this completely right, but. You know, academia is a pretty status-driven uh, mm. sector to work in. And, you know, you do get prizes to kind of being able to challenge a colleague's idea and dismiss their idea mm -hmm. so your idea works. I remember doing my master's thesis and I had two academics marking it. One gave me a really high mark because my mm. critical theory was one that she agreed with. 
And one gave me a really low <laughs> mark because he was like, I hate this reading of this book. You know, my, my background's literature. And I'm like, I just disagree with your theory. So I'm just going to 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 dismiss mm. it. And I'm like, oh, this is this is <laughs> how power and status and stuff is playing out in academia. Yeah. And um, so it's it's part of part of what we're trying to do here is raise consciousness about what is the game being played and how are you playing this mm. game and mm. are you happy with the choices you're making because for many of us those choices are automatic rather than mindful yeah and in the way that you talked about it it on the surface it just seems like a no-brainer why wouldn't we make choices that actually take the load off ourselves that empowers the people that we're, we're actually wanting to develop and grow because that's that's our that's a big part of our role um, that mobilizes the power of the collective to come up and do better yeah. science better research okay. you know it sort of seems like a no-brainer and it's just crazy that <laughs> we we don't do it naturally in theory not many people are going to disagree with this in practice mm. we've got all these other reasons why we would continue on with the behavior that we've been continuing on because of those, you know, that prizes and punishment tension that in the advice monsters. So yeah. there are short-term wins where yeah. you claiming your authority and giving advice and not asking questions actually generate. Mm. So I can see that it, it, it requires a shift in identity about who we are. Like if we're not the people who always have the answers, you know, who are the experts, then who are we? So it requires that shift of thinking about who we are in in our roles, in our interactions. Um, well, Jerry, let me interrupt because I I want to say because that's a very that's that's a very hard thing to ask anybody who's invested in academia because it's like at the essence mm. of academia is claiming a degree of expertise and authority. Mm. So I might offer up a different, a slightly variation on that, which is to say. It's a reframing on how you use your expertise. Oh, if, that's you, good. if you use your expertise as a way of generating insight and curiosity and space and, and opportunities for people to step in, rather than closing those things out, that might be the reframing. It's not. It's, oh, that's it's a, nice. I don't think you can ask people to give up their commitment to expertise if they've committed yeah. to a life of academia. That sounds so much more approachable and doable. Yeah. I mean, the way, the way I talk That's about it in, in organizational life, which is where I spend most of my time is, think of your role as being the person who helps figure out what the real problem is rather than coming up with the fast answer. And mm. it's, it's much harder to figure out the real problems. And it, it draws much more on wisdom and expertise and curiosity. Um, mm. but it doesn't diminish the fact that you've, you know, you've got some experience behind you and you know stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm conscious of time going on and yes. I, I have some questions that have been um, given to me. We're, we're currently running an academic leadership development course and coincidentally uh, this topic of having more curiosity-led coach-like conversations as a, as a leader, was our very topic last Thursday in the last right. Thursday session, drawing on your work um, to a large extent. And so I asked the people in that group, did they have any particular questions? Would you be 
okay for another little bit of time just to do some rapid fire questions one of the questions that was asked was you know when is coaching a coaching like approach not appropriate and how do you figure that out in a conversation you know or at what point in a conversation also might you decide it's time to pivot yeah uh you just do it through practice and the big shift happens by going look if i make my default to be curious and um and then I'll, I'll just learn when the time is to to move from asking questions to mm-hmm. you know showing up in some different way the problem we have is not a problem of too many people being too curious too much <laughs> it's a problem of defaulting to let's get going here's some advice faster so Mm-hmm. I would set yourself some goals, which is like, I'm going to see if I can go a conversation for two minutes without giving advice. And <laughs> then, um, and then uh, you'll just, you'll develop an ear for, oh, now's the time to shift. So practice yeah. and experience is how you do this. So just practice having a slightly awkward moment where you ask a question and they're like, I don't know. I've got nothing else to tell you. I've told you everything. You know, that's like, that's the success. That's not a failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you can shift the conversation on to wherever it needs to go next. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, another question was about the fact that, you know, uh, like I think a lot of the, the people in the course spend away with you know, firm believers in the power of asking, stopping and asking more questions. But one of the questions I had was, what if you know you're trying to implement this type of coaching mindset in an organization or a group, but where everyone else around you is still doing the advice giving and one upping one another, um, you know, doing the know everything, you know, I'm, I'm the expert type of approach. If you're trying to do a coach like approach in this context and ask questions, does that make you look weak or like you don't know what you're talking about? And how do you navigate that? in a group who don't necessarily share the same mindset or approach. Yeah. So there's no generic answer to that other than it's really helpful to understand that that's the dynamic and you need to try experimenting. I think that in my experience, somebody who asks a really good question is often the person who's remembered rather than the person who grandstands on the answer. So, mm. uh, you know, having some good phrases like, you know what, I just want us to pull back from this conversation for a moment because I want to ask this question. And suddenly you frame this as, uh, look, I'm, I'm not going to get involved in this trivial fray. I'm going to kind of step back and ask the more strategic, bigger picture question is a way of positioning yourself to, to do that. Um, now, mm. there may be a, um, a and maybe also a, a way that you go, I need to find the right balance between s- stating my point of view and asking the questions. But um, I, th- one of the ways that you can make your questions land and feel more significant is frame them, introduce them. She's like, look, I know at the moment mm. we've got a debate on different points of view, but rather than share my point of view, I've got a question that I think actually is at the heart of this. And can you see how this is like subtly claiming an authority by being willing to not just defend your small part of the territory, but to try and encompass a bigger conversation? Mm. 
Yeah, that sounds really powerful. And it connects back to what you said about having the meta conversation, which is almost like a mini meta, mini meta input into the into the group discussion. Right. And maybe that might also serve to shift culture over time or maybe who knows. Yeah. That can be a hope. Because then you go, all right, I can't I can't shift everybody's behavior. But I would then be yeah. looking, who are my allies here to try and find different ways of running meetings together? Maybe there's one or two other people in your department or wherever where you're like, why don't you and I try and do something different in these meetings? Mm. There was another question around cultural differences and there's a lot of mobil- international mobility within mm-hmm. ac- the academic context. So you'll often have people sitting around a table from very different you know, nationality backgrounds and so yep. on and disciplinary backgrounds. There are lots of ways that culture plays out. And uh, have you any experiences or thoughts about when these sorts of approaches may better fit certain cultural contexts or not? Yeah. So there's no doubt that coaching is more grounded in a kind of Western uh, framework where there's a kind of a conversation around individual status and individual authority um, and a willingness to be disruptive around hierarchy. Um, and there are other cultures, you know, Eastern cultures, you know, kind of painting it all with a very broad brush mm. where it's much harder to, you know, ask a question because it feels disrespectful of authority. Um, so uh, all I can say is I know this work has resonated in lots of countries around the world, Japan, India, um, you know, other, other Eastern cultures as well, but it, mm. I'm, I'm not a cultural expert, so I don't know enough around to offer suggestions other than with all cultures really the question you're looking at is how do we do this in a way that doesn't involve people losing face and Mm. just what it takes to lose face is different in a Western culture than in an Eastern culture. And again, very broad brushes. I know there are differences within West and within East. Um, And um, other than that, I don't have much more to to suggest other than it's a really good question. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm just reminded in, in you talking about this as well, um, two things. One is there's the thing about not just cultural differences but just thinking about differences straight up. We're all different and we I guess we all have to find our own language and voice in this as well, don't we? Mm-hmm. Like we're not just aiming to, be, to mimic uh, Michael. Definitely don't want to mimic, mimic Michael. That's a, a sure road to misery and confusion. <laughs> but, it, yeah, like I think, yeah, finding our own voice and, and what what's authentic for us in the way that we might engage in this conversation, yeah. but stepping back to the motivation of what we're trying to achieve. Right. Um, another question. Uh, in giving advice, giving mode, we're often asked to give advice to government, external bodies, or advising on policy or to comment on political issues. Is there a way that that could be done differently with a curiosity-led approach? Well, if I was asked to give advice to a government thing, that then you, I would try, figure out how to give the best advice that I can. Um, what I try and do is figure out what's the real challenge that they really want advice on. Mm. Because mm. I work on the assumption that most of the time when people ask me for advice, they don't really know what they want real advice on. And so it's just worth engaging in that conversation going, what's the thing that would be most useful for us to figure out 
a solution to or a suggestion on or advice on. It just mm-hmm. will save you a vast amount of work coming up with a whole bunch of advice where they're like, yeah, we kind of knew that already and that's not what we were really asking for. Great. That's that's really great. So I will put links to your uh, web pages and to Thank the books you. because I really strongly recommend people to pick them up and read them. They're very easy to read. They're very actionable um, and very challenging as well. And I think we can all do academia better if we become more curiosity-led and slower to give advice. So, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Jerry. So there we have the conversation with Michael. My hope is that you find his work as transformative as I found it in my own work. And I know that it's uh, approaches that I'm still trying to apply all the time. It's an ongoing learning journey. I'd highly recommend uh, both the books, The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap. They're both very easy to read. And you can find out more about Michael and his work and links to these books at either boxofcrayons, all one word, .com and at www.mbs.works. And a reminder that you can follow through there to find a link to the Advice Monster questionnaire that he mentioned. So I'd like to challenge myself and you to think about what's the small thing we can start to try out this week just to start putting into practice, staying curious a little bit longer, jumping to advice a little bit more slowly. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.